0: Hey, it's so great to see you all. Uh, If you're new with us, my name is Jason. Uh, If this is your first time, thank you so much for coming. To those online watching, it's great to have you here. Um, How many of you guys were gone for spring break? Anybody have a good spring break? Can we get a what, what? There we go. Woo, 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 Yeah, apparently you didn't go far for spring break. (laughs) because You didn't. (laughs) We went on a vacation to Rockwell. Um, It was a... (laughs) Uh, before we go any further, we started something last week and, and um, I really felt like this is something the Lord is calling us to become is a praying community. And, and I just, I, I want to bring a confession to you guys. It's something that the Lord has really challenged me on is that we have not been necessarily a praying church. I mean, we do our prayers, don't get me wrong, but um, how, many, how many of you guys believe that God shows up when we pray? Amen, right? And, uh, and I think here's the thing. One, we already believe God's Spirit is here. We don't need to invite God's presence. God's presence is everywhere. We talked about this last week, the omnipresence of the Lord. However, what we can pray is for our receptivity, for our hearts to be open to what God has to say. And the Lord kind of challenged me this last week. I'll, I'll, prayer is not my natural tongue. Uh, I love studying. I love singing. But prayer has always been a difficulty for me, and it's an area that the Lord has really been challenging me. And, uh, and specifically, what does it look like for us to be a praying church? So here's what we're going to do. When we come together for the Word, we're going to pray as a community, and we've actually written the prayer up. And here's the deal. If you're not a Christian, if you don't feel comfortable praying this, please don't. This is not a legalistic thing. But if you want to pray with us, uh, we've got it on the screen so you can join me in prayer. Would you stand with me? And then after our prayer, we're going to go through our text for today. Would you join me? Heavenly Father. Holy Spirit, I believe you are already here. I want more of you this morning and less of me. I ask you would help remove the distractions of my week. Where I have sinned against you, please forgive me. Where others have sinned against me, help me to forgive. This morning, help me to hunger and thirst to know you more, to love you more, to live like Jesus. Holy Spirit, I want to make room for your word in my heart for your presence to move in me and in this place. In the name of Jesus, amen. And then let's join for the reading of our text today. This is found in Psalm 27, four through five. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. The word of the Lord, praise be to God. You may be seated. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Well-known author and pastor, John Ortberg, said this. Anytime that you see life flourishing, it is receiving nourishment from beyond itself. Let me say that one more time. Anytime that you see life flourishing... It is receiving nourishment from beyond itself. There is nothing in all of creation that simply just thrives on its own. All things require an outside source to survive. Life that is thriving only thrives because it is being fed by something or someone else. It doesn't matter if it's a plant, an animal, a fish, a reptile. All living things only thrive because something else outside of itself nourishes it. Last week, we talked about the omnipresence and the nearness of God. And I want to tell you, last week, the Lord did some pretty remarkable things. Um, we saw people who were broken over their sin, realizing that they were far from the Lord. I talked to more than a few people, got some people online who reached out and just said, I- I've wandered far from the Lord and to know that even in my sinfulness and my brokenness, God has never abandoned me. God's nearness has always been presence, because that's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is not about what you or I do, it's about what Jesus does, amen? And part of the promise of God for His people is that His nearness is always there. Even in our worst moments, God doesn't like our sin, He's not surprised by our sin, but He promises to not forsake us even when we forsake Him. Even when we want to say, when we're living in disobedience, God's presence is there and He longs like a loving Father for you to come home. Now the omnipresence of God, omni means all, present means places, spaces, and time, which means that in God's perspective, and I want you to think about this for a second, we're finite creatures. What I mean by that is this, we have a birth date and we have an end date, right? We all can point to the day we're born. God has eternally existed. He has always existed. He was not created. He was the uncreated creator. And because He's outside of humanity, He exists in all spaces, in all times, at all places. Now, that we can't fathom that. There's nothing in our framework that allows us to comprehend this. It is part of the mystery and the bigness of God. Now, that's omnipresence, believing that God is around all things. Now, God is not in all things. God is not in this table. That's pantheism. God is not on this stage. But there is something that God does promise for those who are in Christ. His Spirit dwells inside of God's people, which means that if you love Jesus, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit has been given to you. You have the same Spirit in you that raised Jesus from the dead. Tell me that's not amazing. Did you hear that? The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead resides in you if you were a follower of Jesus. We should be getting a whole lot more amens than that. <laughs> right? That's a big deal. Because that means that we have access to something supernatural. Now, that's the omnipresence of God. But there's another part called the imminence of God. And the imminence of God is that God is near, that in certain times and spaces and places, God shows up in different ways. And that when God shows up, we experience His nearness. And last week we talked about there were three ways. There are many ways that God shows up in His nearness, but we looked at three specifically. We looked at that when God shows up in His nearness through revival, revival is not an emotional event. It doesn't mean that there aren't emotions, but when revival happens, when the Spirit of God draws near in certain places and spaces, it leads to prayer and worship, but more importantly, it leads to repentance. And the reason why it leads to repentance is that you encounter God's kindness because it's His kindness that leads us to repentance. How many of you have ever experienced the kindness of God? It's a remarkable thing. Uh, The Asbury Revival, which we, we talked about last week, There were people who were driving by, who weren't even in the vicinity, who weren't Christian, who were so overwhelmed by the kindness of God that they repented of their sin, were drawn in. This is one of the signs of revival. It's not just that prayer and worship happens. It's that God revives a dead spirit and God awakens dead Christians. Some Christians, their faith has been kind of subdued itself, or maybe they've lost the joy of their salvation, and, and this is the nearness of God in the first thing. The second, time, the second thing we talked about in the nearness of God is when God shows up in times of trouble that we experience His nearness, and it's the only kind of growth that happens in times of heartache, that there are seasons where the Holy Spirit shows up, and and. The people I know who've been through difficult times, they have a different relationship with, those, with God than those who haven't. And then there's the third one, and this was the one we spent quite a bit of time on. What happens when it feels like God isn't anywhere near? When it feels like God has completely abandoned us. And we use this illustration of, it, the Bible says, you know, it, Psalms in particular, which are songs written by King David along with a few others. One of the language that David uses, God, don't turn your back on me. And sometimes it feels like God turns our back on us, doesn't it? I mean, I'll be honest, I've had those moments where I'm like, God, I just feel like you've forgotten me. Jesus on the cross quoted King David when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And and here is the beauty of the nearness of God, even in times when it feels like God is far away, he's not. See, God doesn't have a back. God doesn't have a front. He got his spirit which this goes back to the omnipresence of God. So what does it mean when it says God, why have you turned your back on me? It actually is referring to that it, you don't experience the nearness of God, but he's still near. And I brought up a friend or last week and I had him I think it was Jason Dennis actually I brought him up. Actually Jason, come on up here. Everybody let's give yeah, come on. You better be at second service too. Okay, so I want to show this again because this has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about today. Okay, so you guys, if you were here last week, you saw this. Okay, Jason, this is what we want the nearness of God to be. We want this. We want to to feel and experience God. In fact, we want the comfort of God is when we feel like God is embracing us and loving us. But what happens when it feels like God is nowhere near? Now, can Jason see me right now? No. Am I still near him? So even if he doesn't experience it, Doesn't matter what he feels, the truth is about where is God, not what I perceive God to be, but where is God. Now walk, Jason, we did this last week. See, God's presence is near those who love Him, and here's what we want. We want God to guard us, we want God to take our shoulders and direct us, but the only way we become mature believers is when God withdraws His presence, not out of punishment, but out of maturity. And when you begin to understand that, even in those times when it feels like God is far away, that no, God is still near, he still loves you, because this is not forever. God's promise is, hey, I am near you. Now, here's what happens, and this is the beauty of it. As you grow in maturity, when Jason begins to understand, it's funny because my name's Jason too, I'm, I'm, not, I'm God in this situation, but I'm not really God. Y'all you, you, you get that. <laughs> when, Jason, when Jason trusts that I'm here, He is growing in his faith. And this is why God sometimes removes his presence or the feeling of his presence. It's not that he's not actually there. It's that the only way we can grow in dependence on him is when we're not dependent upon the feeling of him. Does that make sense? Everybody give it up for Jason. Thank you, brother. Now... Here's what happened last week, and, and this doesn't happen to me often. In fact, I can only count on probably both hands how many times this has happened. I was all ready to preach on God's generosity, and and I, we had, had it said, and I'd already been preparing mentally and reading and thinking about the the generosity of God and talking about His character and Last week, before we even began talking about the nearness of God, this word, and, and I'm not one of these people that says the phrase, God told me, I, I, I'll say it this way, I feel like God said, or I, I feel like the Spirit said, because I could be wrong, it could have just been the burrito, I don't know, and, and so here's what was happening, is when we were getting ready to preach on the nearness of God, and I was preparing, I just kept on hearing this phrase over and over, and it started as a soft whisper, and it was the hiding place. The secret place. Hey, buddy. And and what slowly started taking place is last week as I was preaching, it, it almost like that voice got louder. And I kept on hearing that the hiding place, the secret place. And it was almost, it started consuming my thoughts to the point where I couldn't even focus on the generosity of God because here's what I was processing through and here's what the Lord was doing in me. Um, I'm going to talk about something this morning that is kind of a weird phrase. You probably, maybe you haven't heard it before or it's a a weird Christian phrase. I'm going to admit it. It's kind of a Christian type of phrase. But it is one that's found in Scripture and it's this idea of a safe place, a secret place, the hiding place of the Lord. And the Lord called me to repentance last week because here's what I've discovered in my own life. See, I, I can get in the busyness of doing ministry that I forget to actually minister to the most important person in my life, which is God. I can get so busy, so wrapped up in taking care of everything else within a church and and staff and and trying to do the things of ministry that I forget that my first ministry is to the Lord. That the first thing I'm called to do is to tend to my relationship with God, to find what David describes as the secret place, the hiding place. And I have to confess to you, I've not done that very well as of recently. I found it a struggle for me to get there. And and then as we started going through last week and, and seeing how the Spirit was moving, here's what I believe maybe the Holy Spirit was doing. I think God is calling us as a church to move into a new season where it's not about being Lutheran, It's not about growing in just our beliefs around certain things, but that we become a people who passionately love Jesus and experience the love of Jesus in our life. And that doesn't happen by accident. That doesn't happen because we talk about it from the stage. It's because we start living it, embodying it. We start inviting it. And and here's what we're going to talk about today is what does it mean to cultivate the nearness of God in our life? How do we find what David calls the hiding place, the secret place, so that we're not just going through the motions of Christianity, but we're living out of a vibrant love relationship with the King of Kings? And if you want that this morning, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would awaken in you, which He's been challenging me on. I want to share, and this didn't happen, but imagine for a second if on my wedding day, after I said my vows to my wife and we held her hands and, you know, we did the kiss and all that stuff, and then we had the party, and imagine as I stare into her eyes and I go, hey, babe, now that we're married, I was just like wondering, what's the bare minimum that I need to do to stay married to you? <laughs> like, what's the, lo- what, what, what's the least amount of things I need to do to, to make you feel like we're married? Like, what's the bare minimum? And obviously, this didn't happen. Because you know what that says? That's just preparing for divorce, right? That's all it's. Ma- marriage is not meant to be a bare minimum thing. And, and all kidding aside, here's what happens. Imagine what happens when you approach a relationship as a transaction instead of something that's transformational. Uh, I want to show you a video clip. This is from News Radio, and it's, it's actually a really good example of this. Check this out. Melanie, I'm single, you're single. What do you say we get married? Well, I'm glad you finally decided on the direct approach. Yeah, well, I'm a businessman at heart. As am I. What's your offer? Single rich male seeks matrimony. Primary residence? Westchester County. Would you be open to considering a secondary residence in Manhattan? Central Park West. South. Done. <laughs> Time spent together? Eight hours, five days a week. Seven hours, 12 hours weekends. 55 hours aggregate, specifics to be determined later. I'm amenable to that children. One. Three. Two. Done. <laughs> But one of them has to be a male. I'll see what I can do. Vacation. <laughs> December, Hawaii. June, the vineyard. June, fine, but Hawaii. Nope, the vineyard. Is that a deal breaker for you? I'm afraid so. Me too. Well, we gave it a shot. <laughs> I'm sure you'll find a better match. Thanks for the time. <laughs> <laughs> Ken, okay, I want you to think about this for a moment. I, I think what happens is there are so many Christians that love the idea of the transaction, that takes place in Christ. That is that when we confess Jesus as Lord, we are there's a divine exchange that takes place, that literally our old identity is crucified with Christ and we're given a new identity. And we love the idea that we're going to go to heaven because of Christ, but I think there are too many Christians who love the idea of the transaction, but don't like the transformation. And, and, and this is what happens in marriages, and I, I've seen this all the time when you have young men, and I'm going to only speak as a man because I can't speak as a woman, but I've known too many men who they get married and they don't let marriage transform them. And they basically just stay, they're just now grown-up children who want to still act like young boys instead of married men. You guys know what I'm talking about? And, and this happens not just in marriage, this happens in faith. When there are Christians who love the transaction of faith, and they, but they ultimately, what they see it as is a business relationship a business arrangement, not a relationship with God. And this is when the Spirit kind of smacked me upside the head last week and said, listen, I have promised you my nearness, Jason, but even more than my nearness, I want closeness. I want intimacy. This is God's desire for every person in the world. God desires intimacy with all humanity. But that only comes through Christ. And, and yes, we are given a, a divine transaction takes place through faith because of what Christ does, but that transaction is meant to lead to transformation, and that transformation only comes through intimacy. It comes through the Holy Spirit working in and through us. Now, here's why this matters. If you want God to change your identity, to make you a child of the King, this is part of the promise of the gospel, but God also wants to change something inside of you. He wants to not just change your identity, but He wants to change how you live out that identity. And and our part in that, and there is a part that we have, our part in that is surrender and intentionality, which is why I love the marriage illustration, and it's just that. It's an illustration, but I like it so much because I'm going to, again, go back to the relationship I understand, and I want you to know that if you're not married or if you don't get married, that doesn't mean you can't experience intimacy, Marriage is not the only way to experience intimacy or love, but it's the one that I understand most. And I'll tell you that my wife and I, what began the transformation and, and one of our very first fights, and, and this was all on me, I'm just going to be honest, one of my very first fights with Lisa, and it was a big one, I told my wife I'd be back in a couple hours. Six hours later, I come strolling home, and my wife goes, you said you're only going to be gone for two hours, and I'm like, you ain't my mama, and she didn't like that, by the way, never say that to your wife, And and she said, well, you said you'd be home in two hours. I said, what's the big deal? It's just six hours. And she goes, well, we're married now. You don't need my permission, but I'd at least like to know where you are. And it took a couple years for the boy of Jason to be crucified, so to speak, so that I became the man that God intended me to be for my wife. And I'm still growing in this, right? But I had to let that marriage transform me. Now, here's the cool part. In the Gospels, One of the ways that the church is described is as the bride of Christ. Jesus is the groom. The church is the bride. And if you are a Christian, you are part of that bride. We must learn what it means to be married to Jesus. Does that make sense? We have to learn what it means to move past the transaction, which is I once was a bachelor, now I'm married, to know I am now a married, my life belongs to her, her life belongs to me. God chose this illustration for a reason. Because God promises his spirit to fully indwell in us. And we can quench that love. We can quench that spirit. And God's saying, no, I have so much more for you. Do you just trust me? Do you trust me? And and here's the hardest part. See, part of the reason why young Jason struggled in this is that I thought that real freedom was being able to make whatever decisions I wanted. But in truth, real freedom was inviting my wife to be a part of every decision I made, because now it didn't just affect me, it affected us. And it's amazing, once I began to see that, I began to let my marriage transform me. When I began to understand that my trust in Jesus, my trust in His Word, my trust in the Spirit to move, changes the way I see and experience God. It's the way we experience God. See, if we're just looking at marriages or or a relationship with Christ as transactional, it will only stay transactional. But God wants so much more, He wants closeness. Nearness means I'm close by, closeness means intimacy, connection. King David, who it's believed wrote many of his psalms uh, during times when he actually wasn't king. He actually wrote several of them when he was a shepherd boy or shepherd young man, we don't really know how old he was, but we know this, we know that he was a musician, that he was tending to his father's sheep, and, and God did, gave him remarkable strength, and he would spend time with the Lord cultivating his relationship with God and sing worship songs, and he'd write about his encounters, his, his relationship with God, and he often described God as his secret place or the hiding place. Now, that word secret in our culture today carries with it a lot of baggage because when I think of secrets, I often usually think of hidden or things that are kept quiet because of fear, pain, shame, or embarrassment. That's what secrecy looks like in in our world today is shh, don't tell anybody. This is between us, and usually it's a way to cause further harm. Sadly, The church has uh, a lot of the secrets of the church, not in Zion, but in the church as a whole, are coming to light, and we're finding that too many Christians love to hide in the darkness instead of exposing the darkness, and sadly, people who are meant to be safe shepherds have ended up being wolves and causing great harm, telling those they victimized to keep it a secret, but that's not the kind of secret we're talking about. We're not talking about the kind of secrets that are born out of sexual, emotional, and spiritual abuse. We're not talking about the kind of secrets that we're seeing in Hollywood or businesses or governmental leaders or world leaders. These are evil things done in secret because sin is so much easier to hide in the dark, isn't it? The Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans 2. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. See, we think we're good at hiding secrets. We think we're good at keeping secrets, but this is the the scary part of God's omnipresence. God sees and knows all things. Nothing is hidden from Him. All secrets will one day be judged. All the things that have been to you or done by you that were shameful and harmful one day will stand in judgment before the throne of God and justice will be given by God. But those who are in Christ, they don't have to fear those secrets because they've already been exposed. That is the freedom of the gospel. But not all secrets are bad. See, some secrets are good secrets. For instance, and and we've all seen these, what if I could tell you the secret to a great marriage? Who wouldn't want to know that? Or how to always make money on the stock market. If I could tell you the secret to that, how many of you would love to know that secret? Or what if I told you the secret to always picking the winning lottery numbers? Right, those are the kind of secrets we think we want or how to lose weight and keep it off. But here's the thing, these are not actually secrets, they are just advice or good tips. That's all those are. We call them secrets because they feel like mysterious things, but in reality, the minute somebody says, I can tell you the secret, it's no longer a secret. Good secrets are things that are kept between two people that build intimacy, trust, and relationship. And they don't just exist in marriage, they exist in friendships. I have dear friends that I've had one-on-one conversations with that just stay between us. I don't even tell my wife about them. And we've shared and I've been able to share parts of me and and what those things are. They're not secrets of, hey, don't tell anybody, but they're conversations between me and another person that build intimacy and trust and and they're not about hiding but exposing sin. I, I think about even in my marriage relationship with my wife, there are things that are in secret that are just between she and I, conversations that are just about us that nobody else should be privileged to. In fact, that's what builds intimacy and closeness are those things that are said in secret. David had such a relationship with God that he described God as his secret place. He looked at God's nearness and and understood that God was not, there was not just a location of God being a hiding place, but God is the hiding place. His presence, his very being Last week, we talked about God's nearness to Paul and how his nearness brought comfort to Paul. And I, I, wanna, I want us to read this together again. This is in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Would you join me in reading this text one more time? I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the... Of being content, whether well fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul, <coughs> in, in ancient Greek world, secrets, that was kind of the, the mystery thing. It was to know the secret of something was really important. And you had all these philosophers that described the secrets of the universe or the, the secret to thing, and Paul's playing on this language of, hey, I have learned. The secret of being content. Now, you might have missed this. I'll tell you, I have for years. Literally, just as I was studying and preparing for today, this hit me. See, I have this picture of Paul as kind of having it all together. I mean, come on, he's Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament. But Paul didn't know the secret to contentment. He had to learn the secret of contentment. Which means that Paul struggled just like every other Christian in the world. Now, it doesn't tell us Paul's struggles. We kind of get this overarching picture of Paul being a man of great faith, but he had to wrestle. He had to learn the secret of contentment through Christ. So, what did he struggle with? I don't know. Maybe he struggled with the sin of comparison or resentment or bitterness. Maybe there were times that he wasn't content. Maybe he struggled being satisfied when things were going rough. We're talking about a guy who got shipwrecked multiple times, beaten within inches of his life, who went seasons where he was in prison. It's easy to assume that he was just like, yeah, bring it on, God. But that's not what Paul just said in Philippians. I have learned the secret of contentment. See, contentment, the secret, is something that God has to do within us. So where and how did Paul learn the secret? And how can you and I learn this secret too? Or is the secret only meant for bible you know, people who write scriptures? Is that the only person that it's available to? And, and usually, this is where the pastor gets up and says, I'm going to tell you five easy steps to learn the secret to a great relationship with the Lord. And usually that's when I do that. And, and then I would sit down and I'd tell you, here's the secret. Prayer and devotions. And then I, maybe i give you, now here's the problem with that. Um, and, and don't get me wrong. Devotion and prayer is important. A devotional life saturated with prayer is very important to a healthy walk with Jesus. But is that a secret? Is anybody like... I never thought of that, Jason. I should read my Bible and pray? For years, that's what I was taught was the secret to a great relationship with God is read your Bible and pray. And then guess what? I'd read my Bible and pray and I didn't feel any more content. Anybody else in that boat with me? Am I the only person who I've done all the things that I was told to do and it didn't seem to deliver on the goods that it was promised? And so that that got me thinking, okay, so what does it mean then? Where did Paul learn this secret in the secret place? And it's called the secret place for a reason. See, the thing with secret places is that they are not easily found. They take work, they take intentionality, they take desire to find these places. And it's not that God is playing hide and seek with you. He's not. Rather, think of it like any other relationship, is that The intentionality, it's that desire to want to meet with God in what David describes as a secret or the hiding place. Listen to Psalm 91. Those who live in the secret place of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. King David had found the secret place of the Lord. The word secret in in Hebrew is a very beautiful word. It's sether. Everybody say sether. And sether means secret place, hiding place, shelter, or covering. Anytime you see these words in the Psalms, they can they're kind of interchangeable: secret place, hiding place, shelter, or covering. David learned the secret place of the Lord in worship. He learned it in his time in the field, and it's possible that most of the sermons or, or, or psalms that were written about the Lord is my shepherd were developed in those places where God was meeting David in that secret place. Now there's a cool thing about tents. Um, I borrowed a tent here, and I hope I can set it up right. I may have to bring bread up. Don't you love my tent? This is not what the Lord's tent looks like, but it'd be awesome if it did. Um, in the Bible, did I do this right? Hey, yeah, let's check it out. In the Bible, God uses tents as something special. See, the thing with tents is that they're easily easily movable. Right? You can take them up, set them down, and when God delivered Moses and the Israelites out of Egypt, they didn't have a temple, and so God set up a tabernacle, which is just a very big tent, and it was the meeting place. It was the place where God dwelt, and they would pick up and bring the presence of God anywhere they went, and the Lord would guide them by a pillar, by a fire by night, and a cloud by day, and and this pillar represented God's presence, and wherever that pillar went, they were supposed to pick up the tent and move it there to represent where God is, and and this idea was in the in the Old Testament, is that you would come and meet with God in the tent. It was actually called the tent of meeting. And, and you had to be right before the Lord. And there was in that tent, there was a, a holy place. This is before the temple was ever built. There was a holy place. And you had to be completely right with God to go into this secret place of the Lord. And, and a high priest would go in on behalf of the people. And, and here was the fear. And there's no Nothing in the Bible that tells us this, but it was believed through Jewish tradition that if a priest did not was not fully cleansed of his sin, if they walked into the Holy of Holies, into the secret place of the Lord, and they had sin in their life, they would be stricken dead. And so one of the things that Jewish tradition tells us is they would tie a rope around the ankle. And if the priest didn't come out in a while, they believed maybe the priest had not fully actually repented of his sin and, and been had sacrifices, and so they dragged the body out. Okay, now this all was in the secret place. It was the place between them and the Lord. Now, here's the cool thing. Jesus died so that you and I could be in completely right relationship with God and now we have access to that secret place into that holiest of places to meet with God. We no longer have to fear. We don't have to wonder, what if I have unconfessed sin? What if, what if I'm not in the right place? No, Jesus made us right. But the question is, do we want to go to the secret place? Do we want to meet God in that, that holiest of places? John Ortberg wrote this. The Bible does not say you are God's appliance. It says you are his masterpiece. Appliances get mass produced. God never grows two people the same way. God is a handcrafter, not a mass producer. And because you have been created by God as a unique person, his plan to grow you will not look the same as his plan to grow anyone else. What would grow an orchid would drown a cactus. Now, why does this matter? Well, when we talk about in the secret place, Here's what I think it means, and and I could be wrong. I want to be clear. I'm I'm, I'm reading into some things because the Bible doesn't really tell us how to get there, but I don't think the secret place is a location. I don't think it's the secret place is over in that corner. If you go to that corner, that's, that's where the secret place is. No, the secret place is where God dwells. And because God wants to be near you and wants to have a relationship with you, the secret place can be anywhere where God can meet with you. But here is the question, and this is why I love this John Ortberg text. He's actually quoting in a very long way Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, here's what we think. We think that one size fits all. If I want to grow, I need to pray and I need to read my Bible and I need to listen to some worship songs, and there I'll find the secret place. But God is a master craftsman, and like any good artist, a good artist understands that you don't treat a block of wood like a block of clay. You don't treat a painting like you would a statue. You, you deal with them differently, and God understands each of us uniquely and understands who you are, and He has created you uniquely, which means He wants to create the masterpiece of you in a unique way, which means your hiding place is going to be different than my hiding place. The place where I encounter God isn't going to look like yours. Um, I've made it no secret. About four years ago, I did therapy. I did a therapy called EMDR. It's a trauma therapy, and it changed my life. And while I was meeting with the counselor, she was helping me to find a safe space, because here's what's going to happen. When you go through therapy, and it's the right type of therapy, it makes you actually more raw first. Like, it gets more painful. How many of you have been through therapy? Some of you are like, I don't want to raise my hand, right? Uh, But it does. When you really go through it, It exposes things, and you need a safe place to expose those parts of you that need radical healing. And so she said, Jason, I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to picture a safe place. Now, here's where I thought my safe place was going to be. At first, I thought I was going to be behind the piano or my guitar doing worship, but actually, that's not what came to mind. And then I was like, well, it's going to be fishing, because I love fishing, and there's nothing like being out with the Lord and and fishing, and that wasn't it at all. You want to know where my safe space was? On the bench press at the gym. And she looked at me and she's like, really? <laughs> she was a little shocked by that. And I said, yeah, because here's what happens. My mind is always going. I've always got things running through my head. But when I'm lifting weights, particularly on the bench press, I'm so focused on the amount of weight. Because if you're doing the bench, if anybody here works out, what happens if you're distracted while you're lifting heavy weights? You get injured. And so the only thing that I think about, everything else just kind of disappears And here's the coolest part. I can point to several times over the last several years where I've been on the bench press lifting and I felt God's presence near me. And I've heard that still small voice saying, Jason, I love you. Or Jason, you've kind of forgotten me. You've been asking me to follow you instead of you following me. Now that doesn't mean, sometimes that safe place has been behind the piano or singing worship. But here's why this matters. God knows me so well that he's going to meet me where I need to be met. Did you catch that? So instead of me telling you here are the five easy ways, what you really need to start thinking about is, Where is the place where you can feel safe enough to encounter God? Now, someone asked, Jennifer asked, she's like, so what's the principle? What's the attribute of God? And I thought about saying, well, God is safe. But anybody who's ever followed Jesus knows that God is not safe the way we think he is. Rather, here's what happens in the safe place. And here's why this matters. See, in the safe place is where God begins to shape us. In Psalm 32, David wrote this, you, Lord, are my hiding place. You will save me in times of trouble. You guide me through songs of deliverance. The hiding place is not a location, it's God. And the more safe that I encounter God, here's what happens in the safety of God. In the safety of God, I can be honest, I can be vulnerable with my sins because I know that I'm loved. Some of you in this room have never had that hiding place in the Lord where you can be vulnerable because the hiding place is actually a very scary place because it's the place where God is going to do business with you. We usually say it's us doing business with God. No, no. The hiding place is where God does business with you. It's where the Holy Spirit, God's love pervades and He begins to expose the sin and brokenness in your life, your lack of trust, your discontentment and pride. In the hiding place is where our identity in Christ is formed. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. I want you to hear this because this is why the hiding place matters is when you discover I'm wired a specific way. Maybe you're somebody who you connect with God through painting. And, and when you're painting or you're drawing or you're writing poetry, you just feel so safe with the Lord. But the safe place isn't a location, it's the space where God is, and God has given each of you, every single person in this room, has a safe place. But the question is, is that place with God or is it in something else? Sadly, too many of us have hidden from God in our sin, and we're trying to keep secrets from God instead of resting in the secretness of God. Does that make sense? Now check this out. Would you stand with me? And I'm going to close with this. In Christ... When Christ becomes our hiding place, when you begin to discover maybe your hiding place is, maybe you're an introvert and you're like, I just want to go for a walk in nature. Have you invited God into that and said Lord, give me eyes to see? Have you created a stillness enough that you can listen to the Lord? Maybe it is working out. Maybe it's doing math. I don't know. Maybe you're weird. You know, you're like, I love a good math problem. And maybe in the Fibonacci sequence, So you math people got that. Maybe you do, you're like, yeah, hey, I, I encounter the Lord's love. I can't tell you where you're going to encounter it, but I can tell you that God has designed every single person in this room to have a hiding place with Him. And there you discover that you are loved, that you are beloved, that you are chosen, accepted, wanted, and even liked. 1 John tells us that perfect love casts out all fear when you find that hiding place with the Lord, you discover that you now can do what David did. See, I want you to think about this. In Psalm 51, David actually writes a song about his worst moment, not as king, but as a human being. David was a rapist, a murderer, a liar. He abused power. He wrote a psalm, a song for all of Israel to hear. And there, David acknowledges that he alone sinned first against God. And then asked God, please, Don't take your spirit from me. Because David knew his hiding place was not a location, it wasn't in a confessional booth, but it was with the Lord in that place that he had discovered, David realized, like you and I can, when God becomes my hiding place, I can finally let my guard down. I can own up to my failures. I can accept my weakness, confess my sins, receive forgiveness, and realize that I am loved wholly in Jesus. And when that happens, I can walk in freedom, live in victory, love abundantly, connect in the gospel community. Beth Moore says this, eventually all secrets manifest themselves. Bad secrets will eventually manifest themselves. Sin, shame, lust, anger, bitterness, all those things will eventually manifest themselves. You can't keep them hidden, but good secrets manifest themselves too. The secrets that are built out of trust in the Lord produce love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness faithfulness and self-control so here's my challenge for us as a community and i'm going to ask you to do something and maybe it's a little scary okay i want you before we worship i want you to picture when was the last time you met with god in a secret space do you even know where that secret space is do me a favor. Everybody close your eyes for a second. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to picture where is a safe place that you can meet the Lord, where life is slow enough that you could hear God, that you can encounter God. When you've pictured that, would you just raise your hand for me? The minute you can picture where that is, raise your hand. Just keep your hand up. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to picture that most... That, that part of you that's longing, maybe you need to know you're loved maybe you've got some sins that you need to deal with. I just want you very quietly to say this, Lord, I give it to you. I surrender my life. Meet me in the hiding place. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna close in worship and, and if you need to go, Please do. But if you want to stick around and linger and worship for a little bit, we want to invite you. If you've got kids, you need to get. But we're going to close with a worship song. You are technically free to go. Receive the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. May you find your hiding space in him. May you encounter the radical, amazing love of Jesus found in the gospel of Christ that brings transformation. And now let's come and worship. And again, if you need to go, I hope to see you next week. But if you want to stick and just worship with us, would you please come and worship?